This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. And this week, I sit down with best-selling author Mary Morantz. Mary's memoir, Dirt, Growing Strong Roots and What Makes the Broken Beautiful, is one of my favorite reads from 2021. Mary grew up in a trailer park in West Virginia and eventually graduated from Yale Law. And while her radical change in society and culture may captivate you, it's her journey of digging deep, of opening her heart to God's redemptive work of the past, the present, and the future that will make you stay. Our conversation is near to my heart because her grandma Goldie and my granny Hester are quote unquote cut from the same cloth. You'll hear what I mean as you listen to this week's conversation with Mary Morantz, and I have a feeling you'll laugh a little too. Good morning, Mary, and welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. Oh, Amber, thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation so much because I feel like it's one thing to sit down and talk about dirt with people who've read it or, you know, they, they, there's something in there that reminded them of their grandma or something like that. It's another thing to sit down with a fellow Appalachian who has lived um, similar parts of the same story. And, and we will, I feel like we'll just get each other in a different way. So I'm so excited to be here. I think so. And what I love is I told my husband, so this is an interesting part of dirt. I read it after a friend of mine recommended it to it, to me. And then we were on our way to Kentucky, just my husband and I for a trip. And I said, I really think you're going to love this book. And so I started reading it out loud to him. And that was what we read our whole trip to Kentucky. I know. And it was so (laughs) funny though, because he's like, your accent even starts coming out when you're reading the book, you know? (laughs) So so if my accent comes out, uh, you will probably understand, but I just want to warn my listeners with my dad, like (laughs) that's right. A glass of wine. (laughs) I know. Yes. Or if I've come back, if I've been visiting my family and I've come back, my husband will say, yep, I can tell you've been at home. It's coming out, you know? So that's awesome. But as we get going, do tell everybody a little bit about yourself and what you do on a day-to-day basis, just for those who may not be familiar. Yeah. So I feel like the, the like um, elevator pitch or highlights check mark moments, people need to know, we'll get into this a lot more, but born and raised in a single wide trailer on the top of a mountain called Fenwick mountain outside of a little town called Richwood, West Virginia. My dad's a logger. His dad was a logger and a coal miner and then so on and so on, you know, yep. like eight generations deep. Um, my mom cleaned houses when I was little. Um, she ended up leaving when I was nine yeah. and fast forward a bit. I go to Yale for law school, which is like, whoa, we're going to need to probably flesh <laughs> that out that. a bit. Um, and then as soon as I graduate law school, I decide instead to start a photography business with my then fiance, now husband of 14 years, Justin. We had a photography business for that whole time. And just as we had pushed that boulder all the way to the top of the mountain um, and had this very established, successful, thriving photography business decided to, I'm like the queen of the pivot. (laughs) I feel like (laughs) 
decided to um, retire from wedding photography and become mm. a full-time author and podcast host. And so I signed a, a five book deal with my publisher and this oh, is book awesome. one of that um, group of five. And so that's what I do. You know, I sit down and talk to awesome people like you and and then I sit by myself for inordinate amounts of time. That's right. That's and right. Words. Well, and you've always wanted to be an author, correct? Yeah, that is right. Since I was very, very little, like five, I felt like I heard God tell me uh, or felt like God was telling me I was going to be an author because Pearl Buck grew up not too far from where I did. And I would always see okay. her little birthplace of Pearl Buck, Pearl Buck Homestead sign. And I just felt like God was like pointing me. You're going to write words, hmm. but you're going to write words that bring honor to West Virginia. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it took a while. I turned 40 the year that dirt came out. So, yeah. you know, there's a, a song about taking the long way around, <laughs> um, but you get there, you get there eventually. That's right. Well, and so your five book deal, do you already kind of know what those are? Yeah, we have a, we have a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And, and book two <laughs> comes out in April. So we're now kind of in the um, editing mode. Like no, we're oh. beyond that. Actually we have, we have ordered it. Yes. Um, there's like a, you know, a supply chain situation. So we're oh. ordering stuff earlier. <laughs> And if all goes well, April 5th is the, the launch for that date. Oh my goodness. So excited. So see, if you love this conversation, you know that more is coming. So I love yeah. that. Well, let's go back a little bit and talk about your childhood. Um, you know, you gave us kind of an overview, dig into that a little bit more. Like, what was it like growing up? What were family dynamics growing up? Because I know as someone who grew up, with a long line of family and just Appalachia, there is so much to unpack there that yeah. the average person does not understand. We only mm. have kind of this view of, oh, it's poverty. There's probably like some type of drug stuff going on, mm-hmm. you know, there, and, but yet family ties. So unpack that a little bit for us, for your personal experience. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it would be helpful for anybody listening um, to go ahead while you're listening, just Google, you know, the book dirt, you can go to the book That'll pull it up and, and take a look at the cover because the, the trailer that is on mm-hmm. the cover, and it's not just that it's a single wide kind of tin can of a trailer. We at different points tried to add on to it. Like the thing to do in the eighties with these single wide trailers was to build on like a little lean to shack addition. Yeah. That was like our version of building an addition to the house. Yeah. Um, and then at one point we tried to build a roof over it. We hired some neighbors to do that and ran out of money in the middle. So it's like half built. So I think visually I'm a former photographer, still, well, still a photographer, former wedding photographer. Um, visually, I think that that helps tell a story mm-hmm. and I don't know if you feel this way, Amber, but there is an element and I bet people listening right now, right, right in this very moment, in the beginning of the conversation, they're probably going, you know, there's some people who might resonate with the trailer. There are some people who might resonate when I say things like I tried to outrun my story by achieving my way into worth. They, they might mm-hmm. resonate with that, but there's a good chance. There are some people listening who are like, I didn't have either of those two extremes in my life where I didn't grow up in that sort of circumstance, but I also didn't go to an Ivy league law school. So what's, what's in this conversation for me. And I think like the repeating theme we're going to hear as we dig into this conversation is that we all have some version of a trailer. We all have something Mm. in our story that we have convinced ourselves disqualifies us before we even begin. And so, Mm. so many of us, this is what book two is really about spend our adult lives trying to 
compensate for that mud in our story by creating the most beautiful on the outside life we possibly can. And so I started this very long paragraph by saying, I don't know if you feel this way, but a lot of times when I start to talk about the trailer and growing up in the trailer, it can feel like I'm describing like a past life or somebody else's life. Like it's hard for me as I sit here in my kitchen at this island to remember that every single thing I could look around me and see are the things that I dreamed of and prayed for one day and didn't mm-hmm. ever think would be possible. So yeah. the, the trailer was leaky, you know, the water, I'm not talking about a drip, drip, drip. I'm talking about torrential. It would pour through the ceiling. I always say my people are the people who know what drywall looks like in that pregnant <laughs> pause just before it crumbles. Um, it poured through the ceiling. It poured through the floor, which was also particle board, which meant that started to crumble. Mm-hmm. In fact, the living room outside my bedroom, you had to know where to hopscotch so that you didn't fall through wow. the floor. There were certain you know, pieces that were still solid and the carpet was sort of the only thing holding it all together. And the carpet then grew mold and mushrooms at many points. And we had stray animals that never got you know, potty trained or whatever you call it for animals. Yeah. <laughs> so they would just go in the carpet. So this brown carpet really was this kind of concept of it always started with dirt because you didn't know where the filth ended. Mm. The dirt ended and the carpet began. Um, and, you know, it was freezing in the winter. We would actually get just like an inch solid of ice on these uninsulated windows. And we had these little like tiny register vents in the floor that I would go sit and put like pull my nightgown over my knees to create like a little like yeah. balloon, you know, yeah. to try to stay warm. I mean, you know, there are certainly people who had it a lot worse than I did, but I will say that when I met my husband, Justin, who grew up in the quintessential suburban New Jersey childhood, you start to realize, oh, wow, maybe some of this stuff isn't, you know, very normal after all. I want to ask a question on that too. The first time Justin ever came home with you, did you find yourself not really wanting to bring him home? Mm, I was worried about it. I'll tell you that. But the the cover, the photo that's on the cover is the one he took the first time I brought him home to West Virginia. And I think that was when I knew that I was going to marry him, honestly, because Mm. he did not treat my family with this, Mm. you know, other, otherizing or this like beneath him or he's, you know, he he loved seeing the trailer because it made me who I am. And he just like really embraced it as it was not like this caricature of itself or this romanticized version of itself. It just, it was what it was. Yeah. And he felt like he got to know me better and that's what he loved about it. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to ask that question for people who, like I said, maybe don't quite, you know, that's not their experience because honestly, where I grew up, it was just so normal to see for me, like a two-story beautiful home with great manicured lawns. And then the very next house be a trailer with a dirt floor with no grass. Like that was just very normal to honestly growing up. I did not recognize that until I would go back home. Like I just did not even notice. Yeah. And so it's interesting because someone from the outside coming in can be like, Oh, Mm. wow. But those things are present in a city. Those things are present in a wealthy community. Yeah. It's just, sometimes they're hidden a little bit better behind uh, pretty curtains. Yeah. You know, one of the things that was really convicting to me as I was writing dirt is um, I had heard this concept of like um, the poverty aesthetic 
um, that was forged, honestly, in West Virginia and Appalachia in like the 40s and 50s, even going into the 60s. But there's these very recognizable pieces of footage where it's black and white. You can clearly tell the person videographing. Is that what it's called? Videographing? I don't think that's videoing. That's videoing. Um, is in the car behind the glass. They're driving down the road and they're taking this footage of like little dirty barefoot children standing Mm -hmm. on the porches of these shacks. And it was done very intentionally at the time to help get some of the, you know, um, like food programs and things that they wanted passed, but it became this image that's really hard to break of Appalachia. And the challenge that I had is like, you know, there are a lot of people in Appalachia who've written books especially in response to, you know, something like a hillbilly elegy mm-hmm. that have said, listen, like, stop thinking that everybody in Appalachia uh, is Scotch Irish, grew up in a trailer, their parent <laughs> is a logger right. or a coal miner. There's a truck on cinder blocks in the yard. And I was like, totally, but I have a conundrum. I have a problem here because I'm Scotch Irish. I grew that, up in a trailer. I know, I mean- <laughs> My dad's a logger. <laughs> My grandfather's a coal miner. There were trucks on blocks in the yard. Like, what do I do about that? This is a That's memoir. Right. You know, I don't get to just pretend like that wasn't the story. And so writing that story in a way that didn't, I I, I hope, and I I believe we achieved this, didn't ever um, take the easy route of caricatures Mm -hmm. and said like, this might be what you think, you know, and maybe some of this stuff is right. But now that I've like drawn you in close enough with what you think, you know, let me tell you what you don't. Yeah. Well, you did a beautiful job though, writing the richness Mm. of Appalachia when it comes to family. And even though that can be hard, the loyalty and the grit to stick with the same job throughout your life, even though it may not have been your first choice Mm. and there's perseverance, there's beauty in that. And that's what we're going to talk so much about. I can't, yeah, I could go on and on. And so that's the thing though. I want to ask as we dig a little bit deeper into it, at what, at what point did Jesus really become intertwined in your story? Like, because I know Appalachia can also be very culturally Christian or Mm. nominally, maybe that's what I should say. What was that like for you growing up? And when did it become something that was real? Yeah. So, you know, when I was writing dirt and, and, and thinking about the faith journey that's woven throughout it, and I was really trying to take like an honest look back at my story and my relationship with God, I would say, That for me, my first, you know, relationship, my first interaction with God was as God. It was before anybody was ever teaching me things in Sunday school about like, this is what happened on Friday. This is what happened on Sunday. This is Jesus. Yeah, exactly. And, um, in a lot of ways, I feel like I spent a lot of my, you know, younger years, teenage years, adult years, just trying to get back to that first interaction I had with God, which was Mm. like like I describe in the book, like he drew down close enough to leave breath marks, this fog on the glass. And that when I went outside, he was in the color, he was in the, he was in the grass and he was in the mud on your hands and the birds stepping off the branches and the sun, you could still feel when you close your eyes, he was color and freedom and fire and dirt. And I feel like then I started going to Sunday school with my grandma Goldie. And that was very much about like, you wear the right dress or you wear the right suit. You might be in t-shirt and jeans all week, but on Sunday we wear the -hmm. pink suits and the, and the, the white shoulders perfume. And we would go there, but it was kind of like, I, like, I always tell people, I didn't even know 
Christians were called to joy. I didn't even know about quiet time. I didn't know how to study scripture. I certainly didn't know you could raise your hands to worship until I was like in my thirties, until I was an adult. So like, we just had a very different church experience growing up. That was more like a history lesson. It was more about the old hymns. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but mm-hmm. it was very, this is what happened. Not, this is what is going on in your heart right now. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I spent a lot of my life just trying to get back to this place where I didn't have to be better. I didn't have to uh, do more. I didn't have to achieve to be worthy of spending time with God. Um, mm. And I talk about one of my favorite parts in dirt is talking about how, when I got baptized, um, I had started going to a bat. My grandma's church was Methodist. I'd started going to a Baptist church with these, the friend who did live in the nice two-story house. Yeah. And that when I emerged from that water, it wasn't just trying to be reborn as a Christian. It was hoping to be reborn more Baptist than Bess, because it felt like God at that point, it felt like God had his favorites, the ones he liked to bless Hmm. their family was, was getting that and not ours. And so I thought like, well, maybe if I'm like, but more like them, Mm -hmm. maybe then, you know, God will bless my life or whatever, like Hmm. still in that stage of like, God is a genie. And can you please give me? all these wonderful things on this list. So I think, I don't know. I think it was sort of like me and God started out really close. Then I saw him let really hard things happen to our family and to stray animals we took in. And then he became this kind of cold and different God. Then he became a God who had favorites and it wasn't us. Mm-hmm. And it was a really long journey to get back to that place of just sitting on the floor, crisscross with God with no separation. Mm. Oh, so many things that I could say to that, and really even just part of the human condition of, do I need to do more or be different in order for God to look upon me favorably, to Mm -hmm. love me? And I think sometimes we forget that, honestly, we struggle with that at a really young, young age. Um, Mm. And I'm not sure. I mean, you just see it all the time. Like Jamie, Ivy and I were actually talking about that in a conversation mm-hmm. we recently had and with her book, you be you. And she's yeah. like, you know, that's where it came out of was just watching women wanting to be anyone but themselves. Yeah. And so that's where we kind of wrestle with God. And that's something to endure. You get to a point and I'm going to read something that you wrote. You get to the point though, where you're really wrestling with, I, I just want to completely dis, you know, regard, get rid of, uh, my roots mm-hmm. versus embracing their beauty. And you write about, I think it was your dad who he, had, he broken both of his ankles. Yeah. And you write, I think about the boots and the bones and how I didn't want to be so lowly as to stoop down and help another human being shake off their layers of mud to wind up with their dirt on my hands. I think that's because for a long time, I believe freedom looked like getting to a place where none of the people were muddy. Mm. So you flesh that out just a little bit with your baptism, but will you kind of tell me your thought process when writing that portion of your story? Yeah. So that, you know, paragraph leads into an, an one right after it that kind of talks about if grace were a house, I think it would look like the father of the bride house, you know, it's, mm. it's warm in the winter. It's cool in the summer. It looks spectacular in Christmas lights. 
and the white picket fences, everybody, everybody keeps their own white picket fences clean and the pansies pruned, um, or, you know, and, you know, I always think of like Steve Martin, like don't step on the petunias or whatever. (laughs) Um, and I think like for a very long time, and there's a repeating theme of this throughout dirt. Uh, another favorite section is when I talk about there once was a blueprint who dreamed of being a real house. So there's this repeating, um, element of, this belief that I held on to that I don't even think I put words to until I wrote dirt that I really felt like until I could get to having a real house, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be like a real girl. I wouldn't have a real life. I wouldn't have something that mattered. And so, you know, when I think about like the, that, the beginning of that paragraph you read, it starts talking about like, he had always said, my dad had always said he didn't want this logging world for me. He wanted me to get out. He wanted me to have an education. And yet every night when he came home, like he wanted me to stoop down and help. I mean, and let me tell you, if you've never taken off work boots of a working man, this is not mm-hmm. like a 30 second process. There's this, like, you're like breaking loose frozen shoestrings mm-hmm. that, you know, have, have gotten yes. in an inch of mud all day. Like you're basically chiseling them out of it. This is a, it's like a 30 minute process. And I remember just being so like frustrated of like, how can you say you want me to get out of this? And then like, wanting me to be so much a part of it every night, you know, and just being like a, a big brat basically. Um, and, and I, I think that's or a teenager <laughs> yeah, <Sorry>. sometimes synonymous, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think that that was part of it. It's like, I, what I'm really describing there. And I think it's something a lot of us have is this self survivalist switch that gets flipped mm. this self-preservation switch that gets flipped where we get so hyper-focused on running and getting out and changing things and breaking generational chains, making something different for our future kids Mm. that when we feel like we're just starting to like turn our focus to where we're the horizon of where we're going to run to, we don't want anybody pulling us back to where we've been. And we certainly don't want these roots to come up and tangle around our ankles Mm -hmm. to hold us in one place when all we can think about is running. And do you feel like you were truly wrestling with that even at a very young age? Yeah, I really was. I don't know. I don't know why. And if it's just, I'm wired that way, or if I was getting little glimpses of the story God had for me, but I, I knew from a very, like I would sit in the yard with this blue spiral bound notebook and draw sketches of like, here's how we can put this roof on it. Here's how we can build walls around it. Man, I had this epiphany on an episode not too long ago. I never, ever, ever drew knocking down the trailer and building a new house. I was always putting up a facade around the trailer oh, inside. Wow. Wow. Right. That is like yeah. my life in a, in a sentence. I was always trying to put up, erect these walls around the trailer inside. Wow. And so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I tried for a little while to like tell, like get my parents on board with the vision of how we too could have the nice two-story house. And when it became clear at the ripe age of, I don't know, five, six, seven, that they, that it just wasn't going to happen. And then I decided then I'll do it myself. (laughs) All out grandma Goldie, I'll do it myself. (laughs) And, uh, I just, I did, I knew, I knew whatever I had to do. I I was going to be in a different life than that. Mm. Could your marriage use a tune up in marriage? Breakdowns, meltdowns, and blowups aren't a big surprise along life's road. There will be moments when you haul yourselves back to the relationship garage for repairs. 
But like a trusty old truck, your classic marriage has lasting value. In the book, Classic Marriage, Staying in Love as Your Odometer Climbs, you'll find inspiration, honesty, and humor from the front seat of 30 plus years of adventure with Michelle and Phil Rayburn. They share their story along with tips to get under the hood and keep your marriage going for the long haul. Work on your communication with discussion questions in every chapter. Plus, Phil adds his witty commentary in pop-up comments throughout the book. This multi-award-winning Christian marriage book has been endorsed by many top relationship experts and counselors. Learn more at ClassicMarriageBook.com. That's ClassicMarriageBook.com. Now back to this week's conversation. That, you know, you say we or my parents. And so that's another part of your story that you briefly touched on when we first started, that your mom did eventually take a job where she left and went on the road and came back less and less and less. Mm-hmm. And because I know there are listeners out there that are still mm-hmm. suffering through things that go along with abandonment and, you know, being a family from a family of a single parent, like there just are things that you experienced that I didn't. Mm-hmm. And so how do you feel like that really impacted your childhood, your life, and really some things you had to do to work through that loss, because she still was. And I don't know if is a part of your life, but kind of flesh that out for us a little bit. Yeah. So what happened was when I was nine, I, my mom started out cleaning houses and I would clean houses with her. Mm-hmm. And then she got a job and Ames store came to town. She got a job at Ames and eventually moved her way up to like assistant manager. And then was unbeknownst to me, was offered a job to go travel from store to store doing, they called it remodel. Um, so she would just like update their floor plans or new layouts, planograms for the shelves, things like that. And, um, I did not know this was happening. Um, but I woke up one morning when I was nine and she was packing a suitcase and left that morning. And she had told me, I mean, my parents got married very young. My mom was 17 when they got married, 20, when they had me, And so they were kind of kids themselves. And I remember being like three or four and my mom telling me that they were going to get a divorce. She was kind of confiding in me as if I was like a grown friend, not her child. Right. Um, And so she left, but it wasn't like she walked out the door that day and I never saw her again. She would come home in the beginning. She would come home every two weeks. Then it was like once a month and then every other month and then for holidays And so in a weird way, there was never like this clean cut of I've been abandoned and this is right. You know, the story, but it was sort of like a series of like mini abandonments. Every time she would come home on a Friday, I get used to her being home again. And then she would leave again Sunday evening. And so, um, I write about that in dirt where I talk about for me, when I think somebody's going to leave me. My coping mechanism is to determine to go out and build a life so beautiful that they'll be sorry they weren't there to see it and be part of it. And I talk about like, I pushed so hard to that because I didn't want to like confirm the deepest fear, which was like, maybe they were right to leave. 
maybe without all the more, I'm not somebody worth staying for. Mm. Ooh, and so that's pretty heavy right there. I'm going to drink <laughs> some water for that. I mean, it's heavy and it's, it's so many people's lived reality. Maybe not the exact same story. Yeah. But something similar. Yeah. But I think like, you know, that's, that's something you can spend a lifetime working through because there are all sorts of different ways that like fear of abandonment can, can show up in your adult life. Mm-hmm. It makes it hard to trust in relationships or marriage. You know, you think about any, we talked about this at the top of the show, like any woman right now who's listening, who feels like I got to show up on Instagram and I got to get a certain number of likes, or I got to get a certain number of comments, or I've got to like make my life just look just beautiful enough. What we're really afraid of is that people we don't even know mm-hmm. are going to abandon us are going to reject us or, you know, oh, my, my engagement down is code for, I feel like I'm being abandoned. And I I talk to Justin about this all the time, which is like the evil of social media. There are lots of good things. The evil of social media is that it first brought us all to only interacting with each other through a screen. And then just when we were removed from in-person community enough, it shut down the connection through a screen, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That's terrifying. And it's terrifying of where the world is headed with new stuff. And that's a whole other Brands I won't get on, but right. It is. I think that we're constantly chasing this fear at its root that if I am not enough of something, I'm not worthy of love. Mm. And I know from some situations personally that I've experienced where it may not be the same type of abandonment, but Mm. rejection for sure. Like that feeling of rejection, you never really fully get over that. Yeah. And so there are things that trigger that, that then you go back and you do work again. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, I feel like, you know, so much as, you know, people saying, you know, you are the beloved child of God. You are all of these things, which I 100% believe, but you, you don't just wake up one morning, believe it and never have to go back and revisit yeah. it and tell yourself that again. Yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think like, that's a good, I think that's really interesting. What you just said about like, you're just going along and everything feels fine. And you think you've (laughs) conquered it is healed. Yeah. I think I'm good. And then like, you have this out of proportion reaction to something small and what on earth, you know, like what on earth, you know, getting curious about what brought that reaction. I'm specifically thinking of, um, I'm trying to think which book it was. Maybe it was like men or men or waffles, women or spaghetti, but one of the marriage books that we read talked about how men do tend to be more wired to when like a fight is brewing, they want to go calm down. They want to go let their heart rate rest. They want to breathe. They want to let their blood pressure come down. And there's certainly exceptions to this. Actually, my producer, Elizabeth, uh, we were talking about this one time and she was saying that for that she's the opposite, that she's more like uh, what I just described. Um, for me, I want to be like, no, we must stay here together and sort this out in the moment. And so when Justin would want to go like, calm down, you know, for me, I'm like, don't abandon me. Like that's, there's, you know, these just little things that he would never think of that way. Cause he didn't have that story. We, you know, that's something we've, we've been married 14 years that we've had to learn about each other of like, oh, so when you do this, this is what I'm really, Mm -hmm. you know, reading it as, but to answer your question earlier, I had not really talked to my mom that much. And then I wrote the first draft of dirt, which is wildly different Amber than the draft that you read. 
Wow. Um, the finished book that you read. Um, it was the first time getting it out on paper. It was the first time kind of taking the lid off of Pandora's box. It was the first time even acknowledging some of these things had happened. And so it was just a much angrier, much more bitter version of the story. And there was no other people's point of view. There was no grace, the lens of grace. <laughs> and so I handed that draft in. I thought I was done. We went out and celebrated with our friends. I was like, yeah, we might change some commas, but I think we're like there. Um, and I got to sleep on it for one night and my editor was finishing up another project. She hadn't even looked at it yet, but that, that one night taking a beat was all it took. Wow. And I kind of like jokingly really like refer to it as my Ebenezer Scrooge moment where I wake up and I'm like, is it still Christmas? I've seen a future <laughs> that I do not like and that there's still ch- like a chance to change it. And so I sent my editor a message and I was like, I'm going to gut this draft. I'm gonna just going to gut wow. it. And she said, you can do that. And that's totally fine. I have not even read it yet. She said, but we have to turn this book in February 17th. And when she said that it was December 17th. So it was two months to the day that I gutted and rewrote 50,000 words. Wow. Um, so it ended up being 70,000. I kept 20 of the original added, you know, 50 new. And that's the story you see now. And one of the things that happened in between those two drafts is that I ended up doing a three hour phone call with my mom mm. where I got to ask her questions. I never asked before. I got to kind of bring up stuff we'd never talked before. And in God's incredible timing, one of the coolest things that happened with that is I had had my podcast for about three months at that time. And so because we were recording it, I had on the headphones and the microphone, she knew we were recording it. And I kind of like slipped into podcaster mode where I got to be kind of interviewing. Yeah. Like interviewing. It was like curious rather than judgmental. And I think because of that, we got to places we never would have, if it was like not recorded or not like this setup or face-to-face and it was just attack. And so it turned into three hours of just finding out all the stuff I never knew. Like, for example, she left, um, in part because in her mind, her job had the health insurance and her Mm. job was making money to pay the bills when the blogging business wasn't. But I also got to say to her, but don't you also agree that you left so that you could be something other than my mom and junior's wife. And she waited and said, yeah, there's truth to that. And then we just, I just listened to her cry for about 30 minutes, <laughs> maybe not 30, uh, felt like 30. Um, yeah, and so I feel right. like, um, yeah, like if you would have told me before that call that that much untangling of my mm. heart and that much healing could come out of one three hour phone call, I never would have believed you, but it really did. And we are, she's now in my life. So that was the biggest thing we prayed for. Well. I'll try not to be tearful myself because I think what you said about how we approach it, like it is so true when you come at something from an interview type mindset, instead of a wounded mindset, it's amazing because I forget that. Like, and I'm thinking about my mother who I don't have a wonderful relationship with. Like there's probably so much that went on that I know nothing about that ended up informing, uh, causing her to make a lot of the decisions. And because you're a child, you really just have no earthly idea. Yeah, totally. Um, something you said about like stuff, stuff I didn't know was going on that made her the way she is. One of the best things that we did in dirt for my own healing from that perspective is I didn't stop with my parents. I started digging into their parents' story as well. Mm -hmm. Cause my mom 
her dad left her when she was three and her mom left her when she was 15. And so she came from a lineage of parents just leave. That's just what you do. Her mom said to her when she was 15, you're old enough to take care of yourself now, Uh, which is just unreal. And and I grew up in a trailer. My mom grew up in a house that didn't have indoor plumbing. Right. So there is this, like in her mind, she had made, she'd already made my life so much easier than she had had it and was continuing to do that. And in her mind, making my life better included, um, this concept of like a nice Christmas, um, JD Vance talks about this in Hillbilly Elegy. It was one of those moments mm. of like my ears perked up because I'd never heard somebody else put words to that. But this concept of like the rest of the year could be a struggle. But if it was a nice Christmas, yes. then, then things were okay. That um, is such and, a cultural thing too. Whoa. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> There's a line in Dirt Near the End where I say, most people look at a story like single wide trailer to Yale Law School and they get interested in the upward explosion Mm. Me, I got interested in the spark that came before. Mm. And so I feel like there's a lot of healing. I think it'd be interesting for you to dig into a little bit of like, what was your mom's childhood? Like, what was her mom? Like, you know, her dad, like, cause you just, I don't know, you become an adult and you're like, oh, being an adult's actually really hard. Yes. I did not know that, (laughs) you know, and there's a lot of empathy. And I think as, um, once you become an adult too, and you, like, I look at, at my children and realize that like, there's just so many layers they're not expected to take in, but we have no idea how they're perceiving yeah. what's actually taking place. Yeah. And so, so much of that is like trusting the Lord, like redeem mm-hmm. the broken places, right? Like you yeah. please, like you're the only one who can, because Pete Scazzaro in emotionally healthy spirituality, he talks so much about the geneogram and really digging into some of your family's past because those things do they get passed on. Yeah. Um, did, you, did you say the geneogram? I've never heard of this. Yeah. It's really all about breaking down like your family, you know, and they huh. look at stuff like alcoholism, divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, all kinds of things yeah. and just how, even though those aren't like genes, you know, quote mm-hmm. unquote genes, there's still patterns of behavior that often impact generations. Yeah. And that sometimes we have to break those generational patterns, but you can't even break them when you don't know they exist. Mm, that's so good. Very, very powerful. But with that, speaking of parents and grandparents, I mean, I wept and laughed <laughs> and maybe even peed my pants a little <laughs> reading about Goldie because, yeah. and, and, and I'm sure there are people listening. That's like, who is this girl? Like, we don't even know her, <laughs> but my husband, if he's listening and my close friends and family know that my granny, mm. I mean, is one of the single greatest influences of my life yet yeah. not was not a Christian until she was much, much older. And so I want you to talk a little bit about Goldie and the legacy that she left in your life. Yeah. Even though, I mean, she was hard nosed and (laughs) straightforward, but present. And I know those things so well, because that is my grandmother in Mm. all of the best and difficult and annoying and loving ways. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I mean, that's what I mean about, I never wanted to paint any of these characters as two-dimensional and it would have been really easy to paint 
my grandma Goldie as, you know, one of the heroes of the story. In many ways, she is one of the heroes of the story, but yes. she was not flawless by any means. I totally get it. I totally yeah. get it. Um, and so, you know, I always, I say in the book, she's one part firecracker, one part sassafras, <laughs> five foot two and a towering force in our family tree. Um, she's my dad's mom. Um, I mean, I swear this is my granny Hester. I I cannot even, (laughs) because literally at her funeral, I describe, when we describe her as, you know, the cotton swab, because she was literally (laughs) like five foot white, fluffy hair. And I mean, the firecracker of firecrackers, like just on fire all the time. So anyways, go ahead. I love it. One of the, like there, I think there are a few different arcs throughout dirt, you know, my, my piece with my past, my relationship with my dad, with my mom, with marriage, et cetera. Um, but one of the arcs is taking all of the, like the grit and the backbone and the, you know, like an, an iron rod through your backbone and the, the strength this woman possessed without adopting the, um, scarcity mindset. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there, there are a lot of studies that say, regardless of the circumstances, a child is in at home. If there's just one adult, whether that's a grandparent or a teacher or a neighbor who will take an active interest in that child's life, it can change their entire trajectory. And that was me in so many ways. Grandma Goldie did not think I could do wrong. Um, and I was her only grandchild for the first 22 years of my life. And, you know, she was super proud of me. She told everybody in town to the point where I think they were like sick of hearing about me. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, she could slam a door like nobody's business and she could get just as mad at me about Mm -hmm. things. And, you know, I think one of the telling moments, there are a couple telling moments. um, They come to the door, a teacher who lived a few houses down came to the door to say they wanted to put me in a gifted program. Mm -hmm. And Goldie thought it was for like, like a slow program. Cause she always expected something bad news to come knocking at the door. And, you know, we had this apple tree in the yard that never once produced fruit until this one summer when we had like, (laughs) it's rainy, like cloudy with a chance of meatballs version of these (laughs) apples falling. It was like comical. And she's like turning them into applesauce and apple butter and canning them and everything she can think to do. Yes. And she said, you know, people of necessity learn not to waste Mm -hmm. whatever small blessings come their way. Mm. And so she was very much a, I'll do, I think probably the most haunting belief that she passed down to me that I still deal with to this day is I'll do it myself. Uh, I'll do it myself. Uh, like the day that she, nobody would help her uh, clean out the, uh, concrete block garage that stood between our two houses. So she <laughs> hooked a chain to the pickup truck <laughs> to pull out the window frame and pulled the whole thing down. Um, I'll do it myself. And I, <laughs> to this day, catch myself believing that lie, that if it's going to get done, I have to do it myself, Mm. that everybody's counting on me and I can't count on anybody else. Mm. And so there is this, I think that's the journey. Probably everybody listening is like, how do we take the good and the strength and the wisdom and the roots, Mm -hmm. the character that we learn from our families, but let go of anything that doesn't serve, you Mm -hmm. know, let go of the bad patterns, let go of the, you know, any like addiction was not a story necessarily Mm -hmm. in my, in my life, but let go of, there was, I did have a grandfather, my mom's dad, who was an alcoholic. And, you know, so how do we let go of these things we think are like wired into our DNA? Lisa Whittle talks about that, you know, saying we can, we can learn from the good Mm -hmm. without being in this fatalistic way 
in this mm-hmm. fixed mindset, scarcity mindset way, predetermined by what they lived. So that's yeah. really, that's really a balance. And I think it's an ongoing journey. Cause like you said, sometimes you don't even know you're operating out of that mm-hmm. belief. You think you've, you've healed it, you fixed it. And then it's like, well, I guess I'll do it myself is still here. Well, and then also that blaming, cause it's, it's never, um, I shouldn't say never. It's rarely an either, or it's usually a both. And, you know, because I I hear you talk about Goldie, I'll do it myself. Mm. Like you said, there's so much goodness in that too. Yet the other side of that is that feeling of, well, nobody else can take care of me. If it's going to get done, I just got to do it on my own. Yeah. Yeah. And my grandmother was one of 13 children. So no wonder she thought that was That's true. Right. I mean, she probably had, you know, 13 kids running around. They probably forgot to feed her most of the time. Oh my gosh, and right. Her dad was very alcoholic and very abusive. Mm. So, I mean, it's so interesting. Yeah. You know, when you think about, I think kind of like for everybody listening, just picture like compound interest, right? They always say like, you know, when you're saving for retirement, for example, your first hundred thousand are the hardest to get to. Most people mm-hmm. quit before they reach that because it takes so long. After that, from 100 to 200, it goes about half as fast because mm-hmm. now you're gaining traction and then so right. on and so on. So it's like you get your last 200,000 in like six months or something when you, when you, you know, think about interest, that whole complication right. out. So it can seem like it can be hard for me to go, really? You thought that was such a better life just because we had indoor plumbing? You know, it can be really hard for me to recognize the, the interest gained in their eyes. But when you're building upon that, right. When, you know, my dad was never really, it was never even like a thought that he would go to college. Yeah. So the fact that to him, there was never a thought I wouldn't go to college and I'm not for anybody listening. I'm not saying you have to do that in this day and age, but like this becomes those first few dollars invested that when you build upon them and build upon them and you, you add in time that end result doesn't happen without those Mm. first small, almost insignificant steps. Yeah. Oh, so true. It is so true. Well, you did eventually move away from West Virginia (laughs) and you did go to Yale law and the contrast there is so drastic that it is hard for people to not get interested. And so you talk about the spark a little bit and so on Mm -hmm. and so forth, but I kind of want to know about your wrestling with identity in those two spaces. When I say wrestling with identity, like did you face a lot of insecurity when you were at Yale Law? And then when you came back home, did you face or, or struggle a little bit with like, oh, well, look at me, I'm at Yale Law. Mm, and yeah. so, because I think that's a common pattern for us when we escape, you know, quote unquote, what we thought was the life we wanted to escape. Right. Um, do we feel like we're good enough once we get there? Yeah. Oh man. All of that, all of that. Mm -hmm. And I would also (laughs) add that I think I've just always been a person who has, uh, in book two, I'll give you a little preview of what's coming in book two. I talk about the filter and underdog movies we all have in our heads. Mm. And I say, I think there's something about growing up in the eighties where (laughs) we, or at least I say you and I, I think are the same age. I think I'm 42. (laughs) Oh yeah. I will be 42 in May. Yeah. So there you go. Um, 
I said, you know, growing up in the eighties with those movies, it starts to give you this filter, this complex. You don't even realize where those movies tell you that unless you are the underdog who is invisible for 95% of your movie, you will never get the happy ending you always Mm. hoped for. And so I think even when I was little in West Virginia, I, especially because I had that friend who had the two-story house and everything else, I started very young with that filter of like, people will not include me. People will underestimate me. People don't Mm. believe in where I'm headed. I'll be the last one people will pick out of the class to say, she's going to be the one to go on to this or that school or do this or that thing. And so, um, I've, I've become really good friends with that filter and it's become a really good constant companion. And the last year and a half of writing the second book. I mean, she's a loof. You, you always, you start out to write a book because you think this will help so many people. And it's like, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> but first it's going to wreck you <laughs> to have fun with that. Um, so it's been a real journey of me just like, like, well, okay, we got to, we got to work on dealing with achieving for your worth and believing mm-hmm. that everybody's rooting against you and all this other stuff. And so I think I've just, the short answer is I've carried that filter, whether I was growing up, went to Yale law school, certainly going to, you know, I mean, one of my favorite stories to tell is our first week at Yale law, um, I was in the hallway, they divide you up into small groups mm-hmm. of about 20. So you have all of your classes together that first semester to help have like a built-in support group. And one of the people, the guys in my small group was like, Hey, Mary, can I get your notes for this for like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I'm going to be out of town got to go out of town kind of unexpectedly. And I was like, Oh yeah, of course. Like, is everything okay? And he was like, yeah, I just got to go to Washington, DC. My grandfather's having a battleship named after him. <laughs> and I was like, cool. My grandma likes to play battleship. That's fine. <laughs> you know, it's like, what is this world? I don't, I don't right. know what's happening. Um, oh, so yeah, I mean, there, there was a certain element of uh, I will, I will hold these people at arm's length and I'll play it very, very mm-hmm. chilly and cool to all of them so that I can reject Fit them in. before they reject me. Mm. Yeah. But then what about when you would come back home? Oh, I could mean, you listen, just go right back into the role or was it like, Oh, look at me. Um, how was that? hundred percent that one, a hundred percent that one. <laughs> and I wish that weren't true. What an ugly thing to admit, but a hundred percent. Well, I point that out though, that Mary, one. because people need to know they are not alone. Like these are, and I'm not saying it's okay, but the struggles that we endure, that we put on ourselves at times, they aren't, there's nothing new under the sun as Ecclesiastes likes to say, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to wrestle through that and hindsight is usually 2020. That was this, I always say for anybody listening, um, especially going into the second book, the second book kicks off with it's talking about the inciting incident that kicks off this next phase of our life, the spark, this moment, this incident, this plot point that sends our mm. hero on a journey that will hopefully leave them utterly changed by the end. And I said, for us, our inciting incident is this breathless and at last exhausted. We have run and not stopped running until we find ourselves panting on the ground and we pray this prayer, God set me free of mm. me. And that is in those moments when I was going back home and wearing the Yale sweatshirt or whatever, that was, that was me reaching, starting to reach there. I mean, there's still a long way to go, but it was this realization of man, I've gone so far out into the world. Mm-hmm. I went and studied in, in England for a year. You know, I bought a J crew cardigan. So I thought that would just change my whole <laughs> life. And I'm, I'm still back here 
feeling that same sense of not enough. And like, if the number one law school could not convince me you have achieved enough now to be worthy, then what was going to be enough? And so I always say to people, you have to almost hit that brick wall of, you almost have to try it for yourself. You have to try to achieve for your worth just to realize this, but what's never going to work. And so I think like that was the beginning of me starting to feel like, okay, I'm going back home and saying like, look how far I've come. And what that really means is I still don't think it's enough. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I I feel like the last year and a half of just, you know, we're just going to get down in the trenches for a while with God and work on this. Yeah. I think I have emerged from the other side of that. I'm not saying I'm like fixed or, oh, or there's really, no arrival girl, <laughs> Yeah, but I will tell just you progress. Like, the, the stock that I put in how my life looks online versus how it, I always say like, I want a life that feels better on the inside than it looks on the outside. Mm-hmm. And what I'm thinking about going into launching the second book versus what we were thinking about going into launching the first mm-hmm. one, you know, I mean, I just like, I just want peace. Like I want peace way more than impressive. Mm. Um, And so I feel like, you know, 40, the forties help a lot with that. Amen to that. Well, as we close out here, um, you know, dirt is so much a story of healing. And as the subtitle states, growing strong roots in what makes the broken beautiful. And so what are a few areas of brokenness, personal brokenness, where you've experienced God's faithfulness um, and his grace? Yeah. I think a couple of them that are my favorites is that because of my parents' marriage and because I saw them, that's, mm-hmm. that's something we haven't talked about. My mom left when I was nine, but they did not officially get divorced until I was 27. Mm-hmm. So they had this very strange like separation, but sometimes they were together and sometimes they weren't. It was very confusing. Um, and I, I became the girl who said like, I'm, I'm just never going to get married. Mm. And so, um, I had been dating a boy. Um, I talk about him in dirt. He's the one who sent in my application to Yale. Very, very nice, very kind boy after a string of very not kind boys. Mm. And we've been together about four years and we broke up to go to different law schools. And also just cause it, we were more friends than anything else. And I was like, you know what? I just, I'm 24, 23, about to be 24. I just don't think I'm ever going to get married. I think I'm good. And you were good with that. And I told my parents this, no offense guys, but if this is what marriage is, I I just, I think I'm good. And then, um, what happened was the summer after my first year of law school, all of my friends had left, literally all of them went to left to go to do internships in other towns and their hometowns, home States, whatever. And mine was in new Haven. And so I was for the first time besides when I first moved there, I didn't know anybody. And I was going to be in the city because New Haven was like a city to me at the time. Um, And so at that point, 2004, very early days of match.com, you could go on match.com just to meet friends, like friends groups to hang out or you can meet up for dates. And so I signed up for like a three-day free trial um, on a Tuesday. And on Thursday, Justin and I met, he like winked at me and I winked back. We met up for coffee. And on Sunday we went hiking and I canceled my subscription before I ever had to pay for it. So like three day free trial and got a husband. And, um, (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I think that's a really interesting, very redeeming part of my story because Justin comes from a very long line of very healthy, happy marriages, both sets of grandparents. His parents are like high school sweethearts who still act like high school sweethearts. Um, they met the night after graduation. And so for him to come in and fill in all of these like cracks, all these gaps. Like he is not the same as me. He is in every way 
the opposite where I need him to be opposite. He's very like, I would say he's like the steady calm <laughs> while I'm the high wire up and down. Oh yeah. Like the roller coaster. That's what I call like, it. <laughs> yes. Yes. And he's just like baseline. Yeah. And so, um, so that's a really beautiful redemptive part of the story. And then a really quick, funny one that I think is hilarious. Um, and like shows the sense of humor God has is I grew up in a trailer that leaked. So it reeked of mildew. I hated that smell. It cling to your clothes. It cling to your dignity, put on the horrible dollar vanilla store, you know, vanilla perfume, dollar store, vanilla perfume to cover it up. A girl who hates the smell of mildew cannot stand it. Fast forward. We've been married two years. We're going to buy a house. And Justin kept saying, let's go look at this one down the street. Um, that sits across from the long Island sound, 270 degree views of the long Island sound. But the house was a disaster zone. There had been a flood, a pipe burst on the third floor, ran for days. The only way they caught it was our next door neighbor saw water pouring out of the second floor window. So basement, first floor, second floor window. They drained it all summer, got mold and mildew in it. The team who cleaned up Katrina had to be the team that came and cleaned up our house. No, no joke. And so I walk into this house. I didn't want to look at it. I didn't want to look at it. I didn't want to look at it. I walk into this house that smells like mildew. And I said, we're home. And so because of all of that, that happened, we as first time home buyers, and this was like 2009 bottom of the market. Oh, it's best. (laughs) We bought into, they were really cracking down on everything, you know, but because of that, God opened the door that our first home is this beautiful waterfront property that 12 years in, we're almost done with all the, (laughs) all the projects. Uh, we're not really, there's still a lot to do. There's Um, always stuff to do, but I mean, to take like your first home smells like mildew and you hate that part of your story. You think that part of your story follows you places, introduces you into most room and to use that to actually open the door to something really beautiful. That to me is like, okay, God, I see you're having a lot of fun up there. (laughs) That's right. Well, Mary, I just want to personally say thank you so much for stepping away from wedding photography and writing, um, your book dirt. I mean, my husband and I both loved it again. It came from someone who recommended it to me who loved Mm -hmm. it. And I, I really am just grateful for your voice in the world. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I feel like I always say like, when you are a hard story person, you can, you develop sort of like an ability to just like feel the energy of a fellow hard story person and like the kindness and the empathy and the wisdom and the depth that creates. And like, as soon as we sat down, I could just see that all around you. So you are also doing very beautiful, important work. What an incredible conversation. I absolutely loved connecting with Mary. She is such a kind soul. Didn't it make you want to start reading Dirt right away? If you decide to purchase Dirt and pre-order Slow Growth Equals Strong Roots, can I ask you to purchase from the links at graceenoughpodcast.com slash dirt. Those are affiliate links, meaning I receive a small payout at no charge to you. And may I also ask you to share this conversation with a friend via text, email, or social media. The best way for people to tune in to Grace Enough Podcast is by faithful listeners like you sharing the show. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. 
The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.